The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. For our kids and our kids' ministry. By the way, our creative team is going to do a different one every week of the series, which we're really, really pumped about. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Philippians this morning. And uh, we're going to jump right into um, this series on uncommon joy. In 2016, the BBC um, began a documentary and filmed a documentary called The Age of Loneliness. By the way, has anybody seen this documentary? Um, The Age of Loneliness. And so this hour-long documentary um, began to explore this concept of loneliness. Who gets lonely? What does it feel like when you are lonely? And so they interviewed people across generations, from elderly to teenagers. They interviewed people like Barbara, who's a silver-headed widow in her old age. They interviewed Isabel, who's an 18-year-old freshman in college. They interviewed Kylie, who's a 30-year-old single working woman. And, um, And so the documentary begins to describe what they call a silent epidemic that's occurring across generations. And one of the elderly ladies in the film, Dorothy was her name, she was quoted as saying, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't touch it. You can only feel it when you've got it. It could be you, it could be me. There are millions of us out there. In 2015, there was a research study done and conducted on this concept of loneliness. And the research study found a lot of things, a few of those including the fact that when social connections are lacking, lacking social connections is as potent as a cause of death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This research study also found that loneliness is twice as deadly as obesity. The study also found that dementia, high blood pressure, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, paranoia, and suicide are significantly more prevalent when social connections are cut. You know this to be true. It's hard to watch someone as they're describing or walking through their loneliness. And you know this to be true as well. Loneliness can come on all of us in a lot of different ways because there's so many things in our world. It just seems like our world is created to stifle our joy. There's so many things that have the potential to steal our joy. Our circumstances, people, calendars, the accumulation of stuff. And so in life, we set out on this journey to pursue joy through things like our performance, our jobs, how many likes we receive on Instagram, our talents, our accomplishments. Even the Declaration of Independence sets Westerners and Americans on this course and this journey for the pursuit of joy through life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Although I'm convinced the longer I live, there's more of us who are continuing to sing. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? And so people look everywhere and they find joy evasive. Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, he sat in his tent and he wept and he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. Tom Brady, Super Bowl winning champion after he won three Super Bowls with the Patriots, he honestly um, said in an interview, is this all there is? And so I ask you this morning as we start a brand new series, is it possible to find joy? (laughs) 
In the third century, there was a man by the name of St. Cyprian. He was an early Christian author. He was the Bishop of Carthage, and he wrote to a friend named Donatus. And this was part of his letter to his friend Donatus. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it, from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds, under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. Donatus, they have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. Can you say that with St. Cyprian this morning? Have you found joy in the midst of a chaotic world? Two centuries before St. Cyprian ever penned this letter to his friend, there was a man that had uh, given his life to Jesus and the gospel, and he's sitting in a prison in Rome. And he originally intended to go to Rome to preach the gospel and to tell people about Jesus. But instead of preaching the gospel and telling people about Jesus, he became a prisoner instead. But in spite of his circumstances, what we find in this letter that he wrote, he seems to be the most joyful man in Rome. In fact, we have this letter that he wrote to some of his friends. And when we read through this letter over the next few weeks together, I want to propose to us, we're going to find how it's possible to experience uncommon joy in spite of circumstances, in spite of people, in spite of the lack of stuff, even in loneliness. So let's begin to read in the book of Philippians this morning, begin our series on uncommon joy. Philippians chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul and Timothy, these are the authors of this letter, servants of Jesus Christ to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. They're writing a letter to the church at Philippi, to their friends in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Verse two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very common opening in these pastoral epistles that Paul, this man named Paul, and how he writes. A very common introduction to most letters in that day. Now, verse three, and let's begin here. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I want you to understand Paul's circumstance and his situation that he's currently in. The circumstance that Paul is in and where he's writing from, it doesn't seem to be the occasion for great joy. He's in a Roman prison and he's about to be tried. The result is either he's going to be acquitted or Paul's going to be beheaded. And so the book of Acts chapter 28 tells us that he spent two years chained to a Roman soldier in his own rented house. He had gone there to preach the gospel and tell people about Jesus. Instead, he's in prison. And so what he finds in Rome is that even the believers who live in Rome were not all in unity with him. Some were persuaded. Others were against Paul, as we're going to see later on in this letter. But let me just say this right up front. As Paul is writing a letter from prison, 
Days of joy in your life will come when we realize that joy is not tied to our circumstances. Here's Paul in prison. Most of our days are based on whether or not the day of work went well, how things are falling into place for us. Have you ever thought about how few of those circumstances that we have in life, how few of those things are actually under our control? People who are dependent on those circumstances. How did the day at work go? How, how are things falling into place in my... People that are dependent on those circumstances are typically miserable most of the time. But notice Paul's attitude here. As he begins the letter, he's writing to his friends in Philippi. He starts this letter, and Paul is noticeably grateful. In fact, when you read the opening of Paul's letter, it's, it's sort of the smile that comes over your face as he's, as, he's, as he's reaching out to people that he's known for many years. And so Paul says he's grateful to God when he thought of his friends in Philippi. It's difficult to be grateful, by the way. It's difficult to be grateful when you're a supercritical person. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that supercritical people are often very lonely and lack joy in their life? Oftentimes, supercritical people, they sort of demand this, this perfection in other people's lives, right? Or, 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 they, or they demand perfection in all of their circumstances and, and things that happen in life, but they rarely demand the same thing from themselves. And so what happens is supercritical people develop this nature where it becomes this internal battle and this conflict within them, their own selves, and rarely does that conflict ever get resolved. And so what happens is the more critical you are, the more this internal conflict grows and the less joy you experience. Listen to me this morning. It's hard to be joyful if you're supercritical. It's hard to be joyful if you're super critical. It's also hard to be joyful to say it from the positive if you aren't grateful. I've never met a consistently joyful person. Never met a consistently joyful person who is consistently critical. But think about Paul for a moment. A reason to be critical? Paul's in prison. <laughs> Paul's in prison. He's sick. He's been beaten. He's been robbed. He's been shipwrecked. His health is gone. He's old. He's not picking up seashells on the beach on Monday afternoon because of his retirement is going great. Most of Paul's difficult memories happen in Philippi, yet Paul starts out a letter and he's extremely grateful. And I want you to see what his gratitude is connected to in verse four. Verse four, it says, in all my prayers for all of you, what does he say? I pray with joy. I pray with joy. Listen to me. When I read that and I understand the context of what's happening in the book of Philippians here, there's an oxymoron that's very thick here. Paul has prison joy. Think about that for a moment. He's got prison joy. He's alone, but the overwhelming note of this letter is that he's rejoicing. Can I be honest for a moment? Do you find that challenging? Do you find that challenging? Like, like if you had to describe a difficult scenario and circumstance in your life and you're like, well, were you experiencing joy in that moment? I'd say, no, I, really, I wasn't. In fact, this week I received an email from someone. It wasn't directly addressed to me, but there were some things that were very critical about me in the email. Can I tell you, I struggle with joy when I read that email. I struggle with joy when I read that email. But listen to me. It wasn't prison. <laughs> it was an email. It wasn't even e an email that I was reading in prison. It was just an email. Paul has prison 
joy. I want to say to us this morning, that's an unusual view of life. I personally believe that view of life is a uniquely Christian way of living. Now, let me explain to you, if you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a Christian, why do you say it's uniquely Christian, Pastor Matt? Well, because sometimes when I receive an email that steals my joy, it reminds me that at times in my life, I believe I need something other than Jesus to find real joy. So let's pull over to the side of the road for a moment. Can we do that? Let's pull over to the right side of the road. Let's, let's have a little bit of real talk for just a moment. What do you need for joy? What do I need for joy? A new address? Boyfriend? Girlfriend? Better behaving kids? Uh, another vacation? I mean, a new job? Like, what is it that I need for joy? Don't hear me say those are bad things this morning. Those are not morally, they're morally neutral, not immoral, not moral. Those are not bad things. But do you need them for joy? What in my life do I need for joy? What do I need more of in my life that I believe if I have this, joy is going to come with it, right? What do you need more of this morning? Is it possible that what you need more of, what I need more of in my life is actually more of God's presence in my life? Is there a greater source of consistent joy? Now listen, if, if you came in this morning, you're not very religious, you're not a Christian, this sounds strange, but let me, let me stretch this out for us this morning. I believe Jesus is the ultimate source of joy. It's got to be foundational for, for us. If you have nothing but Jesus, Paul's in prison. His friends have sort of left him. Paul literally has nothing in prison, yet he has joy. If you have Jesus and nothing but Jesus, you have the foundation for everything you need for joy. So can I say this up front in this series? And I hope you would expect that we would. A life primarily and consistently focused on Jesus is foundational to an uncommon experience of joy. Even in Paul's difficulty. Even in Paul's difficulty, there's this overflowing. His cup is overflowing with uncommon joy. We find it in another place that Paul writes. He writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to how he describes this joy. He said, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves to you in every way. And listen, all of these ways that he's experienced. Listen to what he says. In great endurance in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. Listen to what he says. In truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor. Listen to how he's describing how his life has gone. In bad reports and good reports. In good emails and in bad emails. Genuine yet regarded as imposters. Known yet regarded as unknown. Listen to what he's saying. Dying and yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Verse 10. Sorrowful. But listen to what he says. Yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Listen to me. You can grieve this morning and still have joy. You can experience loneliness this morning 
and still have joy. You can have nothing but still have joy when Jesus is foundational to your life. To get there, though, we've got to walk through this process of, of, of stopping this, this barrage of advertising we give ourselves to over every single day. Think about this for a moment. Forbes magazine recently wrote that Every day, we experience anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 different ads every day. Buy this, believe this, do this, sell this, support this. I, I wish Paul could stand in front of us today and says, regardless of what you see every single day, what you need more of is God. You need more of him daily. You need to begin to experience more joy because you look in his face Daily, And so Paul uses this word joy. It's the Greek word chara. We see a group of words in the book of Philippians that occur 19 different times that give us this concept that Paul is talking about here. And so it introduces this obvious theme that we see in Philippians. And this theme is joy in the midst of adversity. And so as we walk through this series, what we're going to see is Paul's experienced all different scenarios and circumstances in life. If you've experienced it, Paul has experienced it. In poverty and wealth, in loneliness, in community, in conflict, and in good times. And Paul's going to talk about how you can have joy in spite of all of those things. And so the Philippians have been concerned about Paul's circumstances. And so what they do in response to Paul's circumstances in prison, they send this guy, Epaphroditus, to see Paul, to meet to his needs. And so at the very outset of this letter that Paul is writing back to his friends who have sent someone to help him, Paul sort of wants to relieve their concerns by telling them, listen, you don't have to be concerned for me. I have a deep personal commitment. Uh, a couple months ago, we were um, in the playoffs, Story City Softball. We got a good team. It's pretty good. And, uh, and uh, we were, it was like the game before the playoffs, and it was a big game. And, um, and so we're out there warming up. Our infielders are warming up. And, and the game hasn't started. We're just taking ground balls. And, and so, I, you know, I'm a little older. I'm not as young as I used to be. And so, like, but I still think I could do it like I did it at 16, you know. And so, like, I'm fielding ground balls, and I run to you know, grab this ground ball and my ankle just, it, it's obliterated. Like it just blows up. And I, you know, I like did this tumble on the dirt. I'm like, ah! and, uh, and so my kids came early with me to the game. And so I'm laying on the ground, I'm writhing. Oh, my ankle hurts so bad. And so my daughter comes up and she looks over me. And she said, and she's, and you can tell she's got this concern in her face. Daddy, are you okay? Daddy, can I get you some ice? Daddy, we need to prop your foot up. And so in that moment of pain, I look up and, I'm, and, and like this smile comes over my face, right? Like, like my daughter is concerned for me. And I'm like, yes, baby, daddy, daddy's okay. It's, it's just an ankle, right? I think it's so much easier to experience joy when you know someone is concerned for you. And Paul is experiencing the concern of the Philippians as they send Epaphroditus to check on him. And so Paul's joy is not in his personal well-being. And he's telling the Philippians that, yeah, this isn't ideal. This isn't great. I'm, I'm, I'm not in the highlight of my years in retirement. This isn't perfect. I'm in prison, but I have joy. Why? Because the circumstances around me are being tended to by the community who's concerned for me. And so Paul has this overwhelming gratitude. 
It's a direct result of the Philippians caring for him as a minister of the gospel. They're bearing each other's burdens. Can I say this to you? I think this is some biblical evidence for bearing the responsibility, just a little bit, bearing some of the responsibility for each other's joy. Let's develop that idea here in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, in all my prayers for you, I pray with joy. This is why. Because of your, this is an important word, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your, Your Bible may say fellowship. It may say partnership. It may say your participation. The Greek word there is a Greek word. If you've been around church for a while, you probably know it. It's called koinonia. And so it's this idea that Paul's going to use six times in the book of Philippians. It's a word that we often translate fellowship, and it's essential to Paul's experience of joy. Essentially what koinonia means is it's this idea of sharing together a mutual activity with mutual benefit where you have a common bond. It gives us the idea that you have something in common. Now listen to me. Koinonia, as Paul is experiencing here, it's much deeper than just having a friend. It's much deeper than just showing up at Starbucks and grabbing coffee with somebody. What Paul is talking about here, it doesn't happen unless you have something in common. But listen, but what they have in common, they are committed to sacrifice for each other because of that. That's the difference in how our, it, we typically um, have hijacked this word in our modern culture, and we talk about koinonia, and it sort of just gives us this idea of hanging out. Koinonia has a much deeper concept than just hanging out. And so the commonality that Paul has here, the commonality that he has with the Philippian believers and the Philippian church is what they call the gospel. Paul and the Philippians have a Jesus-centered friendship. Jesus brought them together. But then they also have something else in common. It's like you go to coffee with a friend. You, well, you both live in L.A. or you both work the same job, so you got a little something in common. But what Paul's talking about is something way deeper. They have Jesus in common. Their friendship is centered on Jesus. But listen to what they also have. They have a Jesus-centered mission. So let me try to unpack this concept of the community sort of being responsible for our joy together. Let me talk about this Jesus-centered friendship. Let me try to describe it for you. So Paul founded the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. We find that in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, and so on. And so we see a few people that were instrumental in the beginning of the church at Philippi. We see this lady named Lydia, who is an extraordinary business lady. She sold fine linens and fine fabrics. She came to faith in Christ. She hosted the first gathering of their church in her home. And then we also see a fortune-telling girl. She's a slave to a pimp in her city. And this fortune-telling girl comes to faith in Jesus as well. And then as the passage goes on in Acts chapter 16, we find a Roman jailer who also gives his life to Jesus. What brought the Philippians and Paul together was Jesus. They had a Jesus-centered friendship. But look, they came from different places. They came from Rome, and they came from Greece, and they came from Asia, and they came from Atlanta, and they came from Dallas, and they came from Denver, and they came from Iowa. They came from different places, but they were brought together by the reality that Jesus mattered most to them. They had experienced God moving in their midst. They worked together to get the gospel to people. Christians have friendships. Non-Christians have friendships. I think Christians and non-Christians should be friends with one another. 
But a friendship between two Christians is very different. It's based on a commonality. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. When you discover a friendship, it's this moment when you say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. These you two friendships that C.S. Lewis describes are deeper because of the reality. Listen, this reality. Jesus changed us. The Spirit of God unites us. We have this common destiny in heaven together. But not only do we have Jesus in common, but we also have this way of dealing with each other that's also deeper than just a relationship you have with somebody at Warner Brothers that you happen to work with. We, we have something deeper in common because of what Jesus taught us, because of how Jesus dealt with us. You see, you understand this. In relationships, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be trial, there's going to be pain, there's going to be struggle. And so in response, we don't demand loyalty from people. We don't just cut people off. What we do is we try to outdo one another in humility. We try to outdo one another in forgiveness. We try to outdo one another in thinking of the other person, in supporting the other person. And so this concept that Paul has experienced joy over, this Christian community, involves people who have failed. And we're going to see some of the conflict here in Philippians as we go on. It involves people who brought conflict to the table. But for Paul, it doesn't mean that that relationship is now terminal. Jesus-centered friendships have this way of dealing with people that actually unites us. It doesn't divide us. So part of Paul's experience of joy has this concept of Jesus-centered friendships, but it also has this concept of a Jesus-centered mission that they share together. So Paul's history with the Philippian church, it's, it's not just friendship, but they've got mission together. They were the only church, by the way, to support Paul financially as he went out to share Jesus with people. Even after he left Philippi, the church continued to support Jesus and so they, but they also sent people out with Paul as he's going out on these missions to tell people about Jesus, what Jesus could do in their life. And so this concept of koinonia, this concept of fellowship is more than just coming to church and standing at the coffee uh, stand and drinking coffee with each other and asking, how was your week? How was your day? How are the kids? It goes much deeper. We have this Jesus-centered commonality, but we have this Jesus-centered mission. Look, you can have Jesus-centered friendship and not have Jesus-centered mission in common with other people. But look at me. When you have Jesus-centered friendship, and Jesus-centered mission in common, I promise you, you got to take my word for it if you've never experienced it. When you bring these two together, you will experience what many Christians will never experience in their entire lifetime. This week, I was talking to a friend in our church. His name is Chris, and he used to work at Marvel, and we were talking a little bit about Marvel movies. And, and, um, and just think, think, about, think about your favorite Marvel movie for a moment. And the characters that are involved in that cast. Think about um, maybe the Fellowship of the Rings, if you, if you like Tolkien. Um, th think about the diversity of people and giftings and backgrounds that, that, that are portrayed in these movies. Like, like, like think of Tolkien's movie, um, The Fellowship of the Rings. You've got this pipe-smoking hobbit, right? Um, I think you've got um, an elf. You've got a dwarf that has an axe, right? You've got a few warriors. Um, and they all come together with this common mission, right, of defeating darkness and saving Middle-earth. Paul and the Philippians come together from different backgrounds, different places, different gifts, yet they come together and they're committed to the mission of making Jesus known. 
when Tyler made the announcement this morning about serving in, in, in production, see, we have this conversation often about how to engage people in the mission of the church and, and the mission of the gospel. And sometimes we get nervous about, um, about how we promote these opportunities for you to serve. Because I know this, in L.A., things like that come across like, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> like, what am I going to get from showing up early on a Sunday morning? Right? Like our experience in L.A. has been if you can't do anything for me, then why should I be in friendship and relationship with you? And so in L.A., we have this concept like, no, you do something for me. I, I don't do anything for you. And so I, I'm just thinking about this concept of serving and how it engages you in the mission of the church. Our student ministry team has an extraordinary commonality. I, love, I have loved watching these guys. I have loved showing up at meetings with our student ministry team. They sit with each other. They go out to eat with each other. Um, they, they, they hang out with each other. But they've also got a common mission that every student would know Jesus. And so I was, they, they posted a picture this week on their Instagram account. And, and, and one girl who's in the auditorium this morning, she replied, I love you guys. Each and every one of you make my life a thousand times better. I want to say to you, I believe your joy is intimately tied to the people in your life who are living for Jesus and who are on mission with Jesus. And so when you think of this concept of serving the church, it, it, I want you to understand this. It's not, just, it's not just running these cables and setting up this TV and putting mic stands up and, and, and putting drum sets up and making sure the screen is set up right. Look, it's a form of discipleship. You're, you're on mission with people, allowing Jesus to be proclaimed on a Sunday morning. Like if you have no other avenue to be on mission with people, Show up and serve. I promise you, when you have Jesus-centered friendships and Jesus-centered mission, and those two things come together, I, you just got to take my word for it. You're going to experience something that most Christians will never experience in their lifetime. It's not just getting stuff done. It's tied to your joy. And so the Philippians have participated in the work of the gospel with Paul from the very beginning. And Paul is so tightly associated with the Philippians here that his heart's rejoicing. And as he's thinking about this bond that he has with these people, everything they've walked through together. And he's specifically responding to them because they sent Epaphroditus to see to Paul's needs. And so there's this constancy and this commitment of the gospel and to one another. That's the very reason for Paul's motive to say, I thank my God for you, and when I pray for you, I have joy. You know what Paul knows? I've got a history with these people. They've consistently and constantly been there with me and for me, and they know I've been there with them and for them. And because I know they've been there in the past, look at me, they're going to be with me in the future. So Paul's got this overwhelming sense of gratitude and joy. And so he's experienced much joy because of the community he has with the Philippians. Are you experiencing loneliness today? Are you experiencing loneliness today? Do, do you have this concept of true Christian community? I want to say it, it's difficult for these things to happen. But I just want to end this morning and, and just give you a couple thoughts on fighting loneliness, 
developing joy through community based on everything we have just read. So if you have something to write with, you can take down some of these notes. The first one is this. Your personal growth in godliness. Listen. Your pers- don't miss this. Your, without this, it doesn't matter. Your personal growth in godliness is the single most important way to fight loneliness and experience joy in community. It's the single most important way. And so as you grow in godliness, what we need to understand that growing in godliness means I'm responding to the Spirit of God working in my life. And listen to me. That means I obey what God has revealed. I I am a firm believer in obedience-based discipleship. I am not a firm believer in knowledge-based discipleship. Sometimes we're like, Pastor Matt, can you recommend a book? I need to know some more things. And I'm like, that's great. But listen to me. If you're going to grow as a disciple, you need to grow in obedience to what you already know. And so what happens, Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 5, when the Spirit of God works in cooperation with your obedience. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. But listen to what Paul says. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What are the law? The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. It sounds like the supercritical person that Paul is not because he is grateful. Verse 21, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what he says. When you're growing in godliness, the fruit of the Spirit Spirit works in cooperation with your obedience. But the fruit of that is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I promise you that joy will elude us in the community of Christians if we are not walking with God and growing in our relationship with Him. And so if, if... If the foundation of your spiritual life is not reinforced with this strong joy in Jesus alone, the rest of the process of finding joy and fighting for joy in community is going to be evasive to you. I believe joy is a uniquely Christian experience. Why? Because it's a way of life. Galatians chapter 5. I live like this in cooperation with the Spirit. The result of that cooperation with the Spirit and obeying the Lord is love, joy, among other things. The second thing is this. Experiencing joy in community requires this two-way street of mutual concern for others over a period of time. Experiencing joy in community requires a two-way street of mutual concern for others over a period of time. Fighting loneliness is hard. It's difficult. It causes us a lot of times to recluse into ourselves We experience loneliness, and then loneliness becomes a dominant theme of our life, of our thoughts, and then we have this cycle that seems to never be able to be broken. I think one of the saddest things I hear from believers who constantly move from church to church is, I don't connect with anyone. I'd like to say to you this morning that joy has to be fought for. You need some battle scars in fighting for community. Why? 
Because deep down still, we still struggle with the flesh. I'm still a sinner. You're still a sinner. Deep down, what's going to happen is people are going to hurt you. They're going to forget you. They're not going to invite you. They're going to leave you out. They're going to cut you out. They're going to forget your birthday. They're not going to show up at the party. They're going to forget to call you back. They're not going to invite you over. They're going to repeatedly have an excuse for saying no. And the first principle that we just talked about, joy in Jesus alone, is a requirement for working through your own battle scars in community. Joy flows from your union with Christ first. But listen, to experience joy in community, it's going to require you to be concerned for others. Maybe even in your moment of loneliness. The Philippians, by the way, they sent Epaphroditus to Paul. They were concerned for Paul. How are you serving other people in your life? Can I just recommend to you this week? Reach out to someone by text, by, by call, by handwritten note. As I'm writing this message this week, I'm convicted. I need to get back to handwritten notes. Pray for people. Let them know that you have something that needs to be prayed for. Find a way to demonstrate concern for other people. And then finally, and then we're done. The last thing on fighting loneliness and experiencing joy in community, center your friendships on Jesus. Center your friendships on Jesus. When you're around the table, when you're at Foster's Freeze, if you go to Foster's Freeze, please invite me, I love it. (laughs) When you're at the table, when you go to Foster's Freeze, when you're at a game, talk about Jesus. Talk about what you're learning. Talk about what God's doing. Talk about what you're praying for. Talk about what you need prayer for. Talk about friends who don't yet know Jesus, but you're hoping they will one day know Jesus. Center everything on Jesus. So Paul and the Philippians had a couple things in common. Their friendship involved three things, and I'm done. First, they provided material needs and personal care for each other. Second, they suffered alongside of each other, and they encouraged each other. Third, they prayed for each other. I think that's a pretty good recipe for Jesus-centered friendship that leads to joy. Are you generous with each other? Are you suffering with and encouraging other people in your life? Do you pray for each other? How can you have an uncommon joy? I believe a significant part of that process is having Jesus-centered friendships and having common also a Jesus-centered mission I believe you can battle loneliness in the community that God has established together. As I'm putting this message together, I just think of all of those things that I see happening in this place, and it brings me great joy to watch it. But if you're not experiencing that this morning, I want to encourage you to act on something that you may have heard. But I also want to say this, and I'm going to close. Maybe you're here this morning and you aren't experiencing joy. You may be a believer, but can I say to you this morning, you may not be. You may not know the Lord. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you ever given your life to Jesus? There's nothing magical or mystical about it. We don't make you say anything you don't want to say. You simply come to this moment where you realize that God created you. He's responsible for you. You have a problem between you and God. That problem, according to Scripture, is called sin. That problem is never resolved. Scripture says the result is death both in this life and the next. But God in his wonderful, glorious, awesome grace towards us provided a solution to that problem of sin when he died on the cross, that if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we could be saved. Have you ever been saved? Have you ever come to that point? I want to encourage you as we sing one last song and we close out this morning. If you've never given your life to Christ, as we stand and sing, maybe this is the moment where you do some business with the Lord and you say, God, I acknowledge who I am before you. And this morning, I ask you to save me. We'd like to know who you are if that's you this morning. Stop by the Connect table, fill out a card. We'd love to follow up with you and help you to begin 
a journey with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. God, I pray that people in this auditorium, Lord, by the spirit of the living God binding us and uniting us together would find Jesus-centered friendships, find the joy of a Jesus-centered mission that we have in common. God, I pray for some people in this room that are experiencing loneliness. Maybe it's been a long season, God. I pray that the Spirit of God would bring alongside other believers in their life, Jesus. God, I pray for people in this auditorium that don't know you. By the Spirit of the living God, would you convict them of sin and righteousness. Expose how good you've been to them, Lord, and what your death on the cross has done for them. And I pray that you save them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.